My name is Christian Butterfield. I'm a former defense contractor turned writer and editor. After spending a few years overseas, I became fascinated with global conflict. Why does it happen? How does it unfold? And what can we do to mitigate the impacts? I don't pretend to have all the answers. But what I do know is that the first step in navigating the subject is making an honest attempt to understand the conflicts of the world. I'll try my best to that end, and I hope you'll join me. This is International War Report. For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. For the people of Iran, the arrival of his jetliner signaled the beginning of even more radical social and political changes than have already taken place. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. Inside the airport terminal, Khomeini was greeted by scores of Muslim religious leaders and political... The year is 1979, and Iran is on the verge of civil war. There's armed conflict in the streets, riots, a popular uprising against the military dictator known as the Shah. In January of 1979, as the violence and intensity of those demonstrations increased, the Shah flees Iran. Shortly thereafter, Iran's neutered parliament under the Shah decides to allow the exiled leader of this revolution back into the country. That man's name is Ayatollah Rehollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Khomeini proceeds to carry out a series of reforms, driving Iran into intensely conservative Shia Islam, socially, politically, ideologically. It changes Iran forever and leads eventually to the crisis that we are seeing unfold today in Iran. Before we can discuss what's going on today, I think it's important for us to look at Khomeini's revolution and some of the things that caused the Islamic revolution in 79 in Iran and how those things have a bearing on what's happening today. I don't think we can really understand what's happening in Iran right now without understanding a little bit of that history. This story starts in the early 1900s with the British Empire and something called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. There are two major developments in the early 20th century that set the stage for the Islamic Revolution in 79. The first is the concession of oil rights by Iran to the British. And the second is the establishment of democracy in Iran. In 1901, the Qajar Shah of Iran allows British industrialists to come in and explore for oil. The deal is, if the British find oil, they own it and can take it to market and take the lion's share of the profit. 
but they owe a small royalty to the state of Iran. Well, by World War I, the British have found oil, they're drilling it, they're selling it. The British government takes control of that company, so uh, the British establish a nationalized oil company in charge of drilling and selling Iranian oil. It's called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, and it's making, after World War I, a ton of money. But they are deciding the number that they show the Iranians. So Iran is getting screwed on the deal because the British are essentially lying about how much money they're making from oil. They are giving Iran a negligible kickback on the profits. Prior to World War I, around the same time that the British were exploring for oil, the British government starts to get involved in the politics of Iran. And in 1906, they sponsor popular uprisings in Iran that call for constitutional reforms that allow for democracy in the country. What this leads to is the establishment of a democratically elected parliament. The country still has a monarch, but under this new system, the monarch's powers have been reduced, and they're meant to work in tandem with the democratically elected prime minister to uh, write laws, change laws, to run the armed forces, to oversee the prosperity of democracy. Importantly, however, the Shah retains powers that lean authoritarian. He can dismiss prime ministers. He can convene a senate, which is an additional body of government, and he is able to appoint half of those senators himself. And he's able to issue royal decrees that behave very much like executive orders. So, after World War I, what's happening in Iran? Well, we have a newly formed parliament. Uh, they are representatives of the people. They're democratically elected. And they are very dissatisfied with the Qajar dynasty, who is the family that has been the ruling class, the family that has been the Shahs for the past few centuries. The parliament's main complaint is with the oil deal with the British. In the 20s, it becomes abundantly clear that the Anglo-Persian oil company is making off rich from this deal, and that the Iranians are seeing very, very little money on the tail end of these supposed royalties. Most Iranians still live in abject poverty. Notably, the one person in the country who doesn't is the Shah. He lives an excessively lavish and wealthy lifestyle. So the Iranian parliament, with the help of the British government, deposes the Qajar Shah, and they replace him with the prime minister at the time. His name is Reza Pahlavi, also known as Reza Shah. Reza Shah takes advantage of this period of unrest in Iran. He consolidates power for the Shah. He really has a lot of the parliament, uh, either through 
coercion, fear, or loyalty in his back pocket, and they're effectively able to eliminate the democratic part of the constitutional reforms, and he really holds uh, unilateral power again in Iran. Reza Shah imprisons political opponents, he executes dissenters, he executes revolutionaries, he leads a brutal military dictatorship. And by the 1930s, Reza Shah is firmly in control. After taking up this dictatorial role, Reza Shah begins an aggressive modernization campaign. He distances the country from their Islamic history, from their Islamic traditions, and he starts flirting with every side of the colonial powers uh, that have interests in Iran. So he's in bed not only with the British, but as Hitler takes power in Germany, he cozies up to Nazi Germany, and as the Soviets take control in Russia, he cozies up to Soviet Russia. He wants all the help that he can get to aggressively bring Iran firmly into the 20th century. Well, this strategy ends up biting Reza Shah in the ass. Because when World War II breaks out, his relationship to Nazi Germany becomes an issue. Uh, the British and the Russians occupy Iran during World War II. They do that for two reasons. Number one, to secure supply lines in the region, and number two, to secure oil supplies in the region. Remember, the British uh, receive a ton of oil. They own all of the oil in Iran. So they want to protect that asset, and they know that Reza Shah has been close with Hitler and Nazi Germany. So not only do they occupy Iran during World War II, but they send Reza Shah packing because they can't trust him. So in 1941, the British and the Soviets kick Reza Shah out of the country, and they appoint his son, Mohammad Reza Shah, into the position of power. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, otherwise known as Mohammad Reza Shah, is at a young age put into this position of power. And up to this point in his life, he's lived a lavish, wealthy, playboy lifestyle. He's friendly to the West. He doesn't give a shit about conservative Islam. All he cares about is uh, money and having a good time. So he approaches governance very differently than his father at the beginning. And Iran's parliament and uh, opposition parties are able to reestablish democratic processes in the country. So you see the parliament sort of take its retake its role as it was intended by the constitution. As the parliament regains its constitutionally appropriate amount of power, it's dominated by a coalition party called the National Front. The National Front is led by a man named Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh and the National Front 
want Iran to be a strong, independent democracy. They see foreign imperial intervention as a hindrance, and their main objective is to nationalize Iranian oil production. They want control over their resources, and they want to take ownership of the profits that come from those resources. In 1951, Iran and Mossadegh are trying to negotiate with the British some kind of collaborative deal. They want to get rid of the concessionary deal that sees Britain taking all of the profit. They offer a 50-50 deal. Britain rejects that deal, saying that they have a legal right to drill and sell Iranian oil. So Mossadegh, the parliament, and the Shah all work together to, in spite of British opposition, nationalize Iranian oil production, and they sign it into law in 1951. This immediately leads to conflict with the British. They file a lawsuit in the International Criminal Court. Uh, the British lose that lawsuit. They withdraw all of their oil personnel from the country, leaving Iranian technicians who really don't know what they're doing on their own. But the British don't want to give up that easy. They start devising a plan to retake control of oil in Iran. I think it's important to point out at this point that anti-Western protests and anti-Western demonstrations are exploding around this time in Iran, and they're getting so out of hand that hundreds of people are dying at the hands of security forces when these demonstrations take place. That's how fervent these demonstrations are against Western interference in Iran. So you really have the seeds of an intensely anti-Western population being planted in the 40s and the early 50s. And what the British do next, and what the Americans do, makes that sentiment, that anti-Western sentiment, a thousand times worse. So the British uh, institute an embargo on, on Iranian oil to the global market. So there is a global uh, boycott. I would say it's a global bo boycott on Iranian oil, but that's not true. The Iranians can't even get the oil out of the country because Britain blockades the ports of Iran and really are by force bullying them out of the global market. This has a devastating impact on Iran's economy. But not only are the British sowing economic turmoil, they also start to stir up a political crisis in hopes to depose Mossadegh from power. So Great Britain starts supporting the Communist Party in Iran called the Tuda Party. The Tuda Party is very closely associated to the Soviet Union. They're receiving Soviet aid. They're in contact with the Soviets. And Britain starts supporting that party to increase their influence, increase their power. And the communists become 
strong-arm supporters of Mossadegh. They vehemently support nationalization of the oil industry. They believe it brings them one step closer to a communist vision. And anybody who opposes Mossadegh or nationalization, especially as the economic situation and political situation spiraled out of control, the communists responded with violence and would clash with opposition parties in the streets. So the British are destabilizing the economy and destabilizing the political landscape in Iran. But what are they getting at? What kind of positive action can they take to get control back of the oil? Well, they need to depose Mossadegh. And right now, the biggest hurdle in their way is the United States. The U.S. supports Mossadegh and his bid for nationalization. Of course, at the same time, they support the British, but they're really hopeful that a deal, a compromise, can be made. But once the U.S. sees the Tuda party, the communists of Iran, get closer to Mossadegh and really support nationalization of oil, they become suspicious, and the British knew this would happen. This is really why the British chose the communists, because they know that if the United States sees the writing on the wall, that the Soviet-backed communists are really making this nationalization bid happen, then really what's happening is the Soviet Union is taking control of oil production in Iran. The Soviet Union will benefit from the nationalization of oil in Iran. And the U.S. switches sides. They no longer support Iranian oil nationalization. They no longer support Mossadegh. They hop on board with the British and they say, hey, whatever your plan is, whatever you've got cooking in the kitchen here, we're in. And the British do have something cooking in the kitchen. They look to none other than the Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah, the old playboy who doesn't give a shit. This guy is going to oust Mossadegh from the country. He's going to take unilateral control, just like his father, and we're going to have a military dictatorship that's friendly, not only to British industrial interests, but to American industrial interests. We both win. Let's do this thing. So the CIA approach Mohammad Reza Shah, and they say, hey, we've got this plan, puts you in this position of power, what do you think? Well, Mohammad Reza Shah, for all the differences that he has with Mossadegh, he supports Iranian oil nationalization. So he tells the CIA to fuck off, he's not interested. He wants to continue uh, doing whatever it is that he does. Um, the CIA come back to Mohammad Reza Shah and they say, well, how about this? We're going to do this coup no matter what. And if you're not on board, uh, this whole thing that you got going on comes to an end. So you're also out of the country, this lifestyle that you live over with. Um, so really do or die. You're either on board or you're out of the country. 
So Muhammad Reza Shah quickly changes his tune and he says, you know what, it's actually a great idea. Coup sounds great, let's do it. This is all going down between the nationalization of Iranian oil, which occurred in 51, and the collapse of democracy in Iran, which occurred in 1953 with this coup. But before the coup took place, Mossadegh doesn't do himself any favors. As the political situation in Iran dissolves and he starts losing support in parliament and he becomes closer with the communist party he holds a referendum to dissolve parliament and it passes with a strangely high 99.9 percent approval rating so people uh in iran obviously and his political opponents obviously look at that and say what the hell especially because that referendum, not only does it dissolve parliament, it gives total political power to the prime minister, to Mossadegh. And it runs afoul of the constitution. Uh, it really makes the prime minister the new Shah. And this just furthers popular support for the ousting of Mossadegh. Now it's August of 1953. And following Mossadegh's referendum to dissolve parliament, the Shah and the CIA and the MI6 take quick action. The Shah relies on an old constitutional power that allows for the dismissal of prime ministers to oust Mossadegh and appoint one of his generals as prime minister. But Mossadegh rejects this decree, and as it's delivered to him by a colonel in the military, he arrests the colonel and drums up support and defense by the members of the population that still support him and by the Tudor party, the communists. Mossadegh orders his loyalists to arrest uh, anyone suspected of being a coup plotter, arrest members of the military that are sympathetic to the coup, and uh, the general that is supposed to replace him goes on the run. The Shah had already fled the country just in case something went wrong. Something did go wrong. The coup is not working at all. Mossadegh's defense is uh, sweeping the country. He's making these arrests successfully, imprisoning anybody he suspects of being able to affect the outcome of this coup. And the MI6 and the CIA are forced to resort to Plan B. The MI6 has plants in the Tuta Party. They have spies that work for them inside of Iran's Communist Party. Those plants drum up a violent communist revolution to take place just following this failed coup attempt. At the same time, they have plants and spies working in anti-communist groups who respond in the streets with their own unrest, with their own riots and movements to fight the communists. This lays the groundwork for the military to reorganize and respond to uh, these communist movements with force, so the anti-communist demonstrators in the military 
work together to overpower the communists that are supporting Mossadegh and defending Mossadegh, and the military finally takes him into custody. And with that, the reign of secular democracy in Iran is over, and a military dictatorship under Mohammad Reza Shah begins. The effort to install Mohammad Reza Shah and to retake control of oil in Iran by the British and the Americans is called Operation Ajax. That's the CIA's term for the operation as they were conducting it. And they've since acknowledged their participation in Operation Ajax. It's not a conspiracy. It's not a secret. But what were the results? First, that the British no longer had a monopoly on Iranian oil. More equitable deals were cut between the Shah and not only British oil companies, but American, Dutch, and French oil companies uh, had rights to oil in Iran. And a lot of that money went to uh, the Shah, and he used that money to aggressively modernize and develop Iran. That sounds good. And under the Shah, the economy did thrive. Not only did the energy industry contribute to the gigantic growth of Iran's GDP in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, other industries began to flourish as well. You had foreign investment in the automotive industries, and Iran actually becomes one of the top manufacturers of automobiles in the world. The Shah also carries out reforms in the agricultural industry. He devises welfare schemes to redistribute wealth from nationalized industry. So a lot of seemingly positive impact from the rule of the Shah, but all is not exactly what it seems. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about how Iran used to be in the 60s and the 70s under the rule of the Shah, and they'll show you pictures of modern-dressed uh, men and women sharing the same spaces and um, the sort of Western approach to living life thriving and flourishing in Iran, and they'll say, see, it used to be so much better. The Shah actually made that happen through law. He, by law, enforced that people should dress Western. He banned traditional religious garb, traditional Muslim garb. He also establishes a secret police, one of the most brutal in the history of the planet, they commit mass arrests against anybody who he thinks questions his power, anybody who has been identified as a political opponent. Many of those prisoners are executed. If anybody speaks poorly about the Shah or questions his power, challenges him, they are at least arrested. At worst, they're executed. He leads a brutal campaign to solidify power and control 
This cruelty, this violence, coupled with his anti-religious action, his affinity and proximity to Western powers, and his blatant robbing of Iranian GDP. Remember, Mohammad Reza Shah grew up wealthy playboy as leader of the country. He is just abhorrently wealthy. So all of these things spark a conflict between the Shah and the religious authorities in the country who feel that Iran is being led wildly astray, that they are becoming a puppet state of the West and they're losing their cultural identity. Women have gained the right to vote, which the religious authorities object to vehemently. Religious minorities have gained the ability to rule in government. The religious authorities strongly oppose that decision. The general repression of religious expression in Iran and the uh, increase in Western education, it's all seen as a threat by religious authorities to the long-standing Islamic culture of Iran. And so the next internal conflict begins between the religious authorities and the Shah. Now, the most powerful and popular religious authority during the heart of the Shah's rule, the 60s and the 70s, is none other than our friend Ayatollah Rahola Khomeini. In 1963, the Shah announced one of his more bold reform campaigns. Ayatollah Khomeini comes out and rails against these reforms, claiming that the Shah is trying to destroy Islam in Iran. But Khomeini starts talking big shit about the Shah, personally insulting him uh, during his sermons, and he's addressing very large crowds of religious conservatives and stirring up anti-Shah sentiment. This would get anybody else killed in Iran at the time. But because of Khomeini's social and political influence, he is imprisoned for his insurrectionist rhetoric and in 1964, he's cast into exile by the Shah. This leads to massive protests in Iran. Uh, demonstrators are killed, which furthers the Ayatollah's cause even more. And this really noticeable split starts to develop between Iran's religious population and anti-Shah population and between the more Western-facing uh, and pro-Shah Iranians. But over the next 10 years, the Shah really does it to himself. His overly lavish lifestyle, his total disregard for Iranian tradition, and really his brutality and indiscriminate violence leads to a loss of support amongst those Western-facing Iranians. No matter how much they want to see a modernized and forward-thinking Iran, they can't reconcile that vision with the brutality of a ruthless military dictator. And they're also keenly aware of 
a growing loss of national identity. It's almost like GDP over everything. So Khomeini begins to call for revolution in exile, and he starts planting the seeds for that revolution to take place in Iran. Khomeini not only takes up issue with the Shah, his main issue is with the forces that put the Shah into power in the first place, and he continuously reminds Iranians of the recent history of Iran that we just touched on. He's reminding them that the only reason the Shah is in power is because of American and British intervention. He's reminding them that American, British, French, and Dutch companies are robbing Iran of a non-insignificant percentage of the oil proceeds. He's reminding them that many of the industries that are flourishing in Iran are flourishing on the backs of foreign companies. It's leading to a corruption of society, and it's leading to the empowerment and disgusting enrichment of a violent and brutal military dictator. The West is the problem. All the lines lead back to imperialist forces benefiting on the ransacking of Iran. At the same time, Ayatollah Khomeini is preaching an intensely conservative form of Shia Islam. So if his political message resonates with people, they're also sticking around for the religious message, which also resonates. And the vice versa is also true. If the uh, religious audience is tuning in for uh, his sermons, well, when he's giving his political messages, those are resonating with them as well. So all of a sudden, Khomeini has this gigantic following in Iran, and they are 100% on board with what he's saying. They are violently anti-Western, violently anti-imperialist, and they are intensely conservatively religious. Sensing that some of his control is slipping away from him, the Shah's secret police start to execute acts of violence against religious leaders in Iran and even against Khomeini's family who live with him in exile in Iraq. The revolutionaries who die at the hands of the Shah's secret police are made into martyrs, and it leads to a cycle of increasingly intense demonstrations. The Shah responds with violence to suppress that, which leads to an escalation and continuation of the cycle. By 1978, Khomeini is seen by millions of Iranians as having a direct connection to God, being guided by God to lead Iran into a new age of prosperity. And the Shah is becoming desperate. He starts relaxing some of his more hardline policies against freedom of press to try and appease the revolutionaries. This just stokes the flame of revolution with the word getting out quicker and reaching further audiences. 
And the Shah's violence against the people is reaching a truly unsustainable level. So in uh, mid-1978, you have two events that really seal the deal for uh, Khomeini's growing Islamic revolution. The first is a fire at a movie theater in the city of Abadan. Nobody can say for sure today who started the fire, although the Islamic government executed people for it in the years following. But the end result was that over 400 revolutionaries were killed in this fire after the exit doors were barred and the building was set aflame. Pro-revolutionary demonstrators blamed the Shah and the secret police for the fire and for the deaths. And this led to a steep escalation in the intensity of the revolutionary demonstrations happening in Iran in 1978. Less than a month later, huge protests take place in Tehran, the capital city of Iran, on the Eid holiday. These demonstrations grew in size over the course of a few days, and the Shah declared martial law in Tehran and in other cities that were hosting demonstrations during Eid. Demonstrations are banned from that point onward. Well, on September 8th, thousands of demonstrators gathered in Tehran, either because they were ignoring the ban on demonstrations or they were unaware of the ban. Regardless, military forces fired live ammunition into the crowd and killed 64 people. The day came to be known as Black Friday and was another huge step down the road of revolution. In the months following Black Friday, you had huge strikes in almost every industry across the country. You had university students in Tehran take control of the university and begin to fight with the military in the capital. You had pro-Khomeini demonstrators looting and burning symbols of Western culture across Iran, especially in Tehran. And around that time, the Shah calls for peace. He calls for reconciliation. He understands a revolution is inevitable, and he seeks to salvage his position in power by coming to the table with the revolutionaries. Well, Khomeini, who is now in France in his exile journey, rejects any kind of deal with the Shah and calls for the people of Iran in no uncertain terms to overthrow the government of the Shah. In late 1978, the Shah loses the support of the military. The military actually breaks into factions. Very few of them remain loyal to the Shah. A ton of them join the revolution. So the Shah really has no other options, and he flees Iran in January of 1979. Before he flees, he names a new prime minister that serves as the head of state in the Shah's absence. That prime minister in the Iranian parliament 
quickly invite Khomeini back to Iran, and in a very short period of time, mass reforms are taking place yet again in Iran, and Ayatollah Khomeini is named supreme leader of a new Islamic Republic. Although Iran will retain its parliament and many of its democratic processes, the new constitution gives ultimate power of the state to the supreme leader. He's able to vet and veto all candidates for any government position. He's also able to do the same thing for any legislation that passes through democratically elected bodies. So any law he doesn't like, he can get rid of. Any politician he doesn't like, he can get rid of. The Ayatollah's guiding principle throughout the revolution and throughout his establishment of a new government is extremely strict and extremely conservative Shia Islam. And immediately upon taking power, Ayatollah Khomeini puts into place very similar laws that the Shah had in place against the people, only instead of in the name of modernization and economic growth and secularism, Khomeini's laws were just as strict, just as oppressive, but this time in the name of Islam. So just like the Shah had enforced a Western dress code in the country, Ayatollah Khomeini enforces an Islamic dress code in the country. The same way that the Shah oppressed media and rival political factions, Ayatollah Khomeini oppresses the media and rival political factions. But instead of in the name of military control and autocratic dictatorial power, this time it's in the name of Islam. And in some ways, Khomeini is stricter than the Shah. He restricts certain kinds of music. He restricts certain kinds of art. He restricts movies, television, radio broadcast, news, if it doesn't line up with his religious vision. He restricts dancing in public. He restricts public displays of affection. He punishes adultery with death. He punishes homosexuality with death. He punishes apostasy, atheism, and anything that can be considered anti-Islamic rhetoric with death. He by law makes women inferior to men. A woman has to have a man's permission to leave the country. By law, a woman makes less money in the workplace. A woman's testimony in court means less than a man's testimony. They have to cover themselves in public. He changes marriage laws so men can marry girls as young as 13. And he also makes it impossible for a man to rape his wife. So if you're married to a woman, you cannot by law be held accountable for raping her. The formation of this Islamic Republic, this theocratic democracy, which it's not really a democracy, it's just a theocratic dictatorship, is at the heart of today's conflict in Iran. Today, Iran still lives in the shadow of that Islamic Republic. They still live under the reign of Ayatollah Khomeini's successor, Ayatollah Khomeini-i, 
and the same type of violence that the Shah carried out against the people of Iran, the Islamic regime carries out against the people of Iran. But we'll get into that in part two of this episode. I'm splitting this episode up because I want to give the time and attention to the current situation that it deserves. I want to talk about Masa Amini. I want to talk about uh, what the people are currently going through. And I don't want to just touch on it. I don't want to have to cut it short. So um, for that reason, I'll split this episode into two parts. Just so you guys know, a new issue of the report is about to go up on internationalwarreport.com. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter for as long as Twitter remains a thing. And um, you can now get on our Patreon page. It's under the Support Us tab at internationalwarreport.com. Check us out on social media. As always, thank you guys for listening. Take care. <laughs>